The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Sporkbox. Here are your headlines today. Oil prices slip as OPEC plus producers defy U.S. pressure to boost output sharply, but extend their existing policy to return supply to the market and revise up the demand forecast. The S&P closes flat after private payrolls widely missed the mark, with U.S. companies creating far fewer jobs than expected in August amid concerns about the Delta variant. BASF begins to roll out the first steps of its decarbonisation program. CEO Martin Brudermüller tells CNBC exclusively the German industry needs support from Berlin if it's to be both sustainable and competitive. In order to enable us to competitively manage this transformation, and that is my major concern, I need not only the own force and the own effort, I need also the support from society and from politics to really make that successful. And Beijing clamps down on another sector, summoning 11 ride-hailing firms, including Didi, accusing them of hiring unapproved drivers and vehicles. And let's take a close-up look at the oil price this morning. As you can see, under pressure after OPEC Plus agreed an extension to its existing policy of gradually returning supply to the market. You can see uh, WTI and Brent both drifting off uh, down by four-tenths of a percent on the WTI price, 68.30 what we're looking at. Now, the group agreed to keep adding 400,000 barrels per day to the market each month until the end of 2022. Oil producers also raised the demand forecast for next year, despite uncertainty around the pandemic. Well, let's get out to Dan for more. Dan, it's been a big week anyway with Hurricane Ida and the market judging what sort of capacity has been taken out of the market. But all eyes were on this meeting as well. Just give us some of the headlines and what the significance is for the market. Karen, good morning to you. Well, OPEC Plus Plus largely stuck to the script here in this meeting that wrapped up in less than an hour and also finished without a news conference. Journalists were left with no opportunity to ask questions about some of the concerns that this market still faces. Nevertheless, you mentioned we're seeing downside pressure in oil prices right now. That was also the general trading trend that we saw in the immediate aftermath of this decision with prices falling around 1%. So OPEC Plus moved here to increase output by 400,000 barrels per day in October. Analysts that we've spoken to today say this move sends a robust signal to the market that they are confident about the oil demand's recovery for the rest of the year. In a statement, OPEC Plus said, while the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic continue to cast some uncertainty, market fundamentals have strengthened and OECD stocks continue to fall as that recovery accelerates. OPEC is also playing its part to support the global economic recovery, which is something that it has said it would do. Of course, keeping a lid on production could potentially stoke inflation fears even further. And that's something that OPEC Plus does not want to do because that would ultimately also derail the global economic recovery. At the same time, though, what's interesting to watch is the political reaction because the United States has also welcomed this decision. It said it was, quote, glad that OPEC moved to increase production. And this is interesting because we saw the United States actually applying some pressure to the OPEC group in the lead up to this meeting, 
saying perhaps as a result of those inflation concerns, they should be adding more barrels of oil to the market. Within the OPEC group, that was perceived as something that is at odds with the administration's current push to go green. They were thinking, hang on a second, why does the Biden administration want us to pump more oil? It seems as if those concerns have fallen on deaf ears, though, and OPEC is largely sticking to the script. A few other things to look out for here, and I think the most important one is the question of whether or not we're going to see an Iran deal from the United States, because this has the potential to add even more barrels of oil to the market when the demand outlook is still looking quite uncertain, particularly when we see rising COVID-19 cases in some parts of the world and, of course, a new variant to worry about. The question is, will the Biden administration be willing to offer such a generous concession to Iran now by easing those sanctions and perhaps going ahead with a new version of the JCPOA, that's the Iran nuclear deal, in the aftermath of the calamity that we saw from its exit in Afghanistan and the damage that that has done to brand Biden. So the verdict is still out on whether or not that Afghanistan withdrawal is going to change US foreign policy. I think that's probably one of the most important things to be looking out for when we assess OPEC plus meetings moving forward. The next one, Karen, is going to be held on October 4. It's back to you. Dan, thank you very much for bringing us uh, the latest there. Let's continue the conversation with Johannes Benini, who is chairman JBC Energy. Johannes, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, let me just get into some of the initial points that Dan made there. Very brief meeting, uh, a very swift outcome, but no probing questions from journalists. What do we take away from that, given about a month or so ago or two months ago, we did, in fact, have a bit of a split between some of the major producers with the UAE and Saudi seemingly falling out over production levels. Can we draw any conclusions about the brevity of the meeting? Yeah, first of all, uh, OPEC Plus is in firm control of the market right now. Um, the situation you have seen uh, still at the end of July, where they had some frictions, uh, was resolved. Um, so right now, everyone feels very strong. You know, they feel bold. They feel they are in control, but they don't want to, uh, you know, take any risk. Uh, let's face it, uh, expectations and outlooks uh, about economic uh, development are all very closely tied to the COVID-19 situation. And that's a very volatile uh, matter of fact. Um, so I think they, they want to be seen as someone who is in control. They allow the stock market, uh, the stocks to decline slightly. Uh, that will continue. So inventory levels will be drawn. Uh, we can see that in, in places like, like China and elsewhere, uh, even there, uh, but also particularly in OECD parts. Um, I think what Dan mentioned um, is very true. I think uh, everyone is now very keen on seeing the next developments on Iran. Can I bring in the pressure from the United States here? Because at one point, as you, you mentioned control, it felt as though President Trump had fairly strong control over OPEC+. Plus. But uh, with this White House administration, even though there'd been pressure for more supply to be added to the market to cool down the price, that was not uh, part of the outcome. What does it mean in terms of the control that the White House, that President Biden has over the group at this point? Look, the U.S. are concerned about petrol prices rising too much. Uh, the risk uh, for that is m maybe more with hurricanes than with OPEC right now. OPEC is not having a particular interest to allow prices to move too high, 
for two obvious reasons. Developing countries would cry foul like India uh, and uh, shale producers will, would enjoy the benefit. So OPEC wants to keep prices in the 65-75 range. Uh, the White House, uh, as you rightly pointed out before, is, is having this kind of um, difficult situation where they want to go, sure, we are moving to energy transition, supporting too much the oil sector doesn't really pay off. Uh, the call was at the point in time when OPEC had a friction and for a very brief period of time they withheld the increase. Uh, right now, I don't think this is the case. Uh, they are firmly on track to you know, supply the market sufficiently. So I don't see the White House having a similar language like under Trump administration. Johannes, in light of the decision by OPEC Plus today, uh, and if we piece that together with the events in the United States in recent days and around the Gulf of Mexico, what sort of capacity has been taken out of the market and what is it going to mean for prices in coming weeks, given Hurricane Ida's impact on production facilities and refineries? Yeah, I mean, that's that's very difficult to, to uh, estimate uh, the because, you know, it's a matter of how long are those capacities off. Um, we would argue that probably around 250,000 barrels were taken out on average for August, and we would say less than 100,000 barrels for September. That means we would assume a relatively swift recovery uh, on the upstream sector. Uh, even on, in the Mexican side, you know, the, the, the Pemex outage was uh, resolved uh, within a week. So I don't think this is a major issue, but of course, it's always an uncertainty factor. It keeps the market on its toes. Uh, in terms of outlook, I think the big, big question here is now what happens on Iran. Uh, what Dan mentioned about uh, the U.S. Uh, you know, offering another deal. Uh, the question is, what is that going to be good for? Because Iran already is very, very close to have uh, weapon-grade material. The IAEA has made that clear um, the other day. And uh, at that point, you know, even if you put them back into a deal, uh, once the deal expires, within no time, they again managed to reach weapon-grade material. And you have seen lately a visit of Mr. Bennett, the new prime minister of Israel in the U.S., and they agreed on the joint strategy. Uh, well, I'm not sure. Um, we will see what that means, but I'm more concerned about the developments in the Middle East. Johannes, as you bring in the geopolitics here around Iran, what does it mean for the energy price? Because we've already had a couple of volatile months uh, over summer. Uh, what does uh, Iran's potential contribution to the market mean? Well, initially, um, I, I'm, I'm more concerned about the military fallout uh, because that's the only way to push back Iran, um, although it doesn't really help because the know-how they have already. Uh, that would mean that the prices have a potential in the next two months uh, for a significant spike because you never know how military confrontation is going to play out. Uh, if that is um, not the case, uh, then of, of course by the end of the year you may see more barrels coming from Iran. Again, something that OPEC Plus is able to manage. Uh, they will allow Iranian barrels to come back because they have no choice anyway, uh, but they will manage to the rest of the supply, um, I would say, reasonably well. Can I bring up uh, what is moving the price then? Because we've been closely watching both supply and demand uh, dynamics of late and the forecast from OPEC Plus was that they don't really see uh, demand uh, coming back until the end of 2022 in a strong fashion. That's when some of the, the forecasts have been adjusted. So what does that mean? Does that mean the supply side is going to be moving the market more than demand in coming months? 
absolutely OPEC plus is in control and they will add as many barrels as the market needs. Uh, if they are concerned the demand is not that robust, uh, they will always keep that a little bit on the short side to go sure the prices have no reason to collapse. Uh, if you look on the prices, is a good indicator. Uh, most of the um, products and particularly crude oil are still in, in backwardation. Uh, so that's not going to change too much. And uh, from that point of view, I would say the market looks stable as of now. Can I bring up the motivation of some of the member states of OPEC Plus at this stage uh, in terms of chasing break-evens to ensure enough profits flow back to the, some of these major oil companies that also then funnel money back into the state? What is the motivation here? Because there's a huge energy transition going on as so many of these countries need to plan for the future. But at the same time, the cost of COVID and keeping economies back on track is a, a huge onus for, for many of these countries at this stage. So what is the motivation in terms of guiding prices higher from here for many of these countries? I mean, first of all, they need $70, a lot of the big players, uh, in order to balance their budget. But, you know, the big trend that we can see already is some of the IOCs, the international oil companies, are retreating from the Middle East. Um, they're trying to reduce their carbon footprint. Um, and you will see more and more of the national oil companies to take over. Um, we are now in the decade of the national oil companies, and we are in the decade of OPEC+. Plus, um, meaning that they are the ones that will pick up uh, the upstream assets uh, that everyone else is leaving on the on the floor on the table uh, because they need to uh, you know get the income as much as possible and they, that's the only thing they can do most of those uh, countries uh, the only resources they have are carbon uh, intensive fuels um, oil and natural gas and they have to make the best out of it Johannes, thank you so much for joining us on the back of the OPEC Plus meeting and breaking it all down for us. Johannes Benini, chairman of JBC Energy, and joining us today to talk about the oil market. And let's take a quick look at those U.S. markets yesterday. Uh, you could see first trading day of September unlocked a very slim gains for some of these markets. Uh, the S&P uh, barely in the green at this point is one point higher, but it was a story for some of the big tech names as the Nasdaq again stretched for fresh records. About a third of a percent high, very modest pickup though for the start of the month. Elsewhere, the Dow reversing, you can see falling by about a tenth of a percent or, or almost 50 points by the close of the trade. Negative impact from the likes of Caterpillar. Uh, that was one of the stocks moving to the downside, but uh, the market very closely watching some of the data on the ADP. This is the private payrolls report as we get set up for the payrolls report to tomorrow, the non-fund payrolls. And at this stage, don't forget, there's been a huge focus on the taper coming from the Fed and whether the Fed is getting closer to its goals on the employment market. So uh, any miss on the numbers tomorrow could be significant for risk on assets at this stage. So I think investors are playing a little bit cautious in the trading session yesterday. But let's take a close-up look at some of those big tech names that were on the move. Apple, of course, uh, one of the, the big contributors to the upside for the S&P and also for the Nasdaq. The gains there are uh, almost uh, half of a percent, just over four-tenths of a percent. But uh, stronger gains elsewhere, you could see is some of the streaming services in play. Netflix, 2.2% higher and uh, decent gains for Twitter in the social media space, 1.6% higher, uh, offset by a little bit of a loss for Tesla, down two-tenths of a percent. The dollar has been on the back foot trading around a one month low and that has propelled some of the other trades higher. In particular, euro is the one that we've been watching the last 24 hours. Flashing a little bit, but you can see 118.37, the handle we're perched at. Uh, 137.73, that is a slight nudge higher for sterling in morning trade. But uh, investors closely again eyeing the Delta variant and uh, dynamics across the United States with COVID cases against, of course, uh, any monetary retreat, monetary policy retreat. But dollar 
just a fraction weaker given all those dovish comments we've had out of Jackson Hole and from Jay Powell and Co. Uh, the Asian markets, uh, early uh, picture looks like this. Uh, we are trading modestly firmer. Again, picking up on that Wall Street trade where you've got a little bit of green splashing off the boards, but not a huge runaway direction. The best of it really on the Chinese market, bouncing up six tenths of a percent. Again, a huge focus on the big technology names and how they are battling some of the headwinds from regulators. The uh, other market to watch out for is Australia down seven tenths of a percent. Weaker move on Aussie stocks today. And just a reminder, if you want more on OPEC's pledge to return supply to the market, as well as the biggest market moves of the day, don't forget to download the Squawk Box podcast. And let me tell you what's coming up on the show. Ahead, BASF begins to roll out its multi-billion euro decarbonisation plan. But CEO Martin Brudermüller tells CNBC that German industry can't foot the entire sustainability bill if it's to remain competitive. If we want to succeed in the decarbonisation plans of Germany but also of the EU, we have to come to a totally new way of collaborating between industry and politics. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. The CEO of BASF, Martin Brunemuller, has told CNBC in an exclusive interview the next government in Berlin needs to provide the right support and framework for German industry to become more sustainable while also remaining competitive. This is the world's biggest chemicals group begins to roll out the first part of its multi-billion euro decarbonisation programme. Let's get out to Aneta for more. Aneta, there's already been criticism that heavy industry is not moving quickly enough towards decarbonisation to hit climate change goals. But what's the, the main call from BASF as they seek, I guess, a series of green lights to try and push forward with its agenda? Yes, exactly. And I think if you look at the overall contribution to uh, carbon producing, it's not essentially the industry, which is the culprit. It's more or less coal in Germany. And then a huge fraction also goes uh, to housing. So it's an interesting distribution. But let me bring you back to the industry. So chemical companies do need a lot of energy. Only BSF is, is using 10% of Germany's energy um, because they, they need such a lot of energy for their steam cracker, especially, which is in the beginning of the chemical process or production process. So what they're doing, they're working quite hard on um, yeah, uh, inventing, for example, an electric uh, powered steam cracker, which then can be um, powered by electric energy coming from renewables. They just bought a wind park together with Vattenfall, an offshore wind park, which then will produce their renewable energy. So they do quite a lot of things. But of course, the carbon neutrality targets do put a challenge on them. And it will also cost a lot of money. And th what they say, of course, they need to have a 
a good regulatory framework to be able to operate within. They're not calling for subsidies. So take a listen of what Mr. Brudermiller told me yesterday in that exclusive interview. If you look on our company, we will now do the first steps for the reduction to 25% of our emissions until 2030. It will cost about maybe four or five billion uh, euro investment. But you can imagine this is the first pilot plants and then maybe the first step to become commercial. It's getting more expensive after 2030 because then you have to actually scale. You have to replicate the commercial plants and that is certainly much more uh, investment. But I think it strongly depends also on the political framework conditions because really let me mention that it will only work if we get the right framework. And also our own investments will depend on how affordable is, is the electricity. You have four or five cents production cost in a wind park, which is absolutely competitive. But then you have the EEG in Germany, you have uh, all kind of levies, you have um, um, energy uh, um, tax. So that has to go away in order to enable us to competitively manage this transformation. And that is my major concern. I need not only the own force and the own effort, I need also the support from society and from politics to really make that successful. But it brings me directly to the next question. Uh, what are you expecting or what do you want from the next government in order to maintain competitiveness as a company? Well, we need, I mean, let me really clearly say this. If we want to succeed in the decarbonization plans of Germany, but also of the EU, we have to come to a totally new way of collaborating between industry and politics. What we currently see is that politics is engaging in one ambition after the other. Can it be 10 years faster, 10% more reduction? Uh, so it's, it's a race about ambition. I would say it's ridiculous. And I ask myself sometimes whether society and politics needs to make a real reality check. Uh, it is not lacking in ambition. What we have to engage now is the how. We all understood where we want to be. And I can say as a father of children, as a CEO, as a citizen, I want this to, to be a success. So we have to engage now to really say, where do we want to be? What does it take to get there? And that's the effort where politics is not engaged. And so we have to really demand on the new German government that they engage with us to create positive regulation framework. It cannot be forbidding, restricting, not allowing anymore. It must be enabling. What do you really need to make this a success and to stay competitive on this journey? But do they also need to um, lower the energy costs Absolutely. for companies? I mean, as I said, uh, four or five cents is an industry price uh, for electricity, which would make us competitive. And the pure energy production brings us uh, there, uh, also without subsidies, but um, all the costs in between have to go away. And you know that Germany has one of the highest electricity prices in the world and if you want to electrify and you have two three times the cost you have with fossil it cannot work um let us talk about like taxes and all that stuff going forward are you concerned that there will be tax hikes um, which brings you even in a less competitive situation well i think the the tax debate is a global one uh, there's also a raise in in tax reduction uh, so i mean we have to really look on how we, we see the overall package. I think what is important, if the companies should manage the transformation, you have also to ensure that they earn the money to invest. So for that reason, I think we have to discuss about that. We have also to discuss about funding. I think if this is a societal demand that you go for the transformation, it is also a societal task to help you at the beginning of that journey to engage. So new innovative uh, technologies, first pilot plans, 
they have to be subsidized and funded. I don't talk more about the commercial part. That has to stand on its own feet because we should not go for an evergreen uh, subsidy scheme, a new one like the EEG, but uh, we have to engage in that one. So it's not only the taxes, it's also the public funding. And this is this positive framework I'm talking about. So what is needed are clear rules in order to facilitate investments. That's what we are hearing here from not only Mr. Brudermüller, but also other CEOs on the ground, because clearly um, there is a huge investment need in order to enable companies to uh, get more carbon neutral in the future and to reach those very ambitious targets. And one of the big accusations or, or discussions currently is that Berlin is just setting new goals and new demands, but it's not clear how to get there. And those rules are really needed in order to also attract uh, investments from the private sector. Public-private partnerships could be one uh, one option also for building up something like the grid, which is needed to bring those offshore energy wind park um, to the south of Germany. It's quite a long way and exactly these grids are not there and they are desperately needed in order to be able to achieve that carbon neutrality and also renewable uh, build up because of course nuclear energy will also go way out of the equation with uh, the nuke exit by 2023. So I guess there's a lot of challenges for the new government and a lot will depend on how good they will be on execution. And that, of course, will depend also on which coalition we are going to have in Berlin. Currently, it all looks like an SPD run government. Um, but the key question is with which other party in the coalition. With that, over to you. Netta, while we're talking about BASF, I want to pick up on the share price. I mean, some investors might be wondering as you have this broader conversation about change and carbon targets with the company, what is happening with it? I mean, the chemicals performance for European stocks has been incredibly strong this year, uh, straight line up almost. And if you look at BASF year to date, it's been down two tenths of a percent. Why is it somewhat separate from the performance that we're seeing across the wider sector? Um, it's actually a good question, and I don't really have an answer to that question. Um, I've been watching that share price development as well. Of course, that might be that um, analysts are concerned about the huge chunk of investment which is needed for um, those uh, carbon neutrality targets. There could be um, also questioning whether they need more capital, but they have a lot of cash flow, and they're still the world's largest uh, chemical company. So I guess um, we have to speak to analysts. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.